You're listening to the Dogs Program after that wonderful fanfare for the common man. And here we are on 3CR in the new year. Happy New Year to everyone. And the dogs are here, as always we are, fighting for public education. We've got a very full program for you today because there's been some very interesting uh, things happen. I feel that the public school people who've really put up a tremendous fight in the last few years are starting to win the rhetorical battle. We don't hear so much about parental choice anymore, but we do hear about disadvantaged children being underfunded in public schools. So the Save Our Schools people have done a great job. But there have been three developments that we want to talk about in our press release 1005, which is on our website at www.adogs.info. And unfortunately, the politicians and the powers that be always want a compromise, don't they? And when there's a compromise, somebody always loses out and it's always the disadvantaged and the poor. So let's find out about the interesting things that have been happening, which are sort of like little tinklings at the edges of the state aid problem, because the big problem is that private schools are getting public funding when they shouldn't, and this affects the public sector. So I'm going to give it to Kim to read our press release 1005. Politicians, official reports and commentariat seeking a compromise in the state aid fiasco. Over to Kim. Thank you, Jean. This is press release 1005. The gross inequities in the Australian education system, not to mention the segregation of children on the lines of class, creed and culture, is largely caused by state aid to private school religious schools. But while the funding problem is recognised, solutions offered are merely piecemeal and symbolic rather than effectual. On the positive side, lobby groups like the Australian Education Union and Save Our Schools have done a sterling job in the war of facts and figures. They have composed the rapacious greed of the private sector and changed the prevailing education rhetoric from that of parental choice to equity for disadvantaged children. The vast majority of these children have long been relegated to underfunded public schools. The result is that in the past months, at least three interesting things have happened. Number one, firstly, in the May 2023 budget, the Victorian Labor government has decided that wealthy private schools are businesses and should pay payroll tax like public schools. The private schools reacted, of course, and in August there was a partial backflip. Private schools in Victoria earning over $15,000 per student will now be subject to the state government's payroll tax. The payroll tax, announced following the May state budget and signed into the law the following month, will apply to roughly 110 of Victoria's wealthiest high-fee private schools who will now lose their payroll tax exemption from July 2024. Although compromises have been made, the basic funding that these wealthy private schools are businesses, not charities, is an important breakthrough. Secondly, the Charities Commission has reacted to a draft report on philanthropic giving released by the Productivity Commission at the end of November, which recommended stripping tax-deductible status from school-building funds. Many of these funds are run by religious schools. Research by Save Our Schools has shown that 10 of Australia's wealthiest schools received more than $200 million in donations over a five-year period, income that does not affect the level of government funding they receive. School-building funds were given DGR, deductible gift recipient, status in 1954, when government support for non-government schools was very limited, the report said. 
Since then, government support for non-government schools has expanded considerably, but the indirect support through DGR status is not prioritised according to a systemic assessment of the infrastructure needs of different schools. The Commission also warned that the tax-deductible donations could be directly converted into lower fees, giving people a tax break on their school fees. Save Our Schools says donations contribute to the overfunding of private schools. At the very least, income from donations and investments should be included in the assessment of the financial need of private schools, the organisation said in a statement earlier this year. Current data does not distinguish between school building funds and other donations. The proposed change would affect about 5,000 school building funds. The religious schools are fighting back, so this is not a foregone conclusion. However, it is an interesting development. And thirdly, and perhaps the most interesting development of all, is the report of the panel set up to inform a better and fairer education system which has exercised the minds of many educationists. This report will inform the next round of federal funding for schools as part of the National School Reform Agreement. This is due to start in January of 2025. The report was commissioned off the back of a scathing review by the Productivity Commission in January 2023. This found initiatives in the current agreement have done little so far to improve student outcomes. The two most interesting recommendations relate to full funding of public schools and enrolment policies of private schools. For example, it notes it is critical all schools have access to 100% of schooling resource standard funding as soon as possible. In questioning existing arrangements, the report also contemplates the possibility that public funding of non-government schools is only provided on the condition that they cannot charge fees. Jason Clare, the Federal Minister for Education, has endorsed the findings of the report. There have been a number of interesting commentaries on the report, most notably in the Canberra Times, The Conversation, The Guardian Australia, and Tom Greenwell has a superb piece in Pearls and Irritations. And what's the dog's position? The above developments introduced by state and federal Labor parties are merely an attempt to placate the very angry public school parents who have long agitated for proper funding of their schools. In past decades, they have watched billions of dollars of public money being channeled into luxurious private school buildings while their principals and teachers suffer poor conditions and burnout. The reality of the current situation is that the dual system is failing to adequately educate the majority of Australian children, most particularly those from disadvantaged home backgrounds. Yet, in spite of all the billions of dollars diverted into the segregated denominational system, the public system has performed better than its rival on the PISA international tests. Catholic and independent schools had the biggest declines in the OECD's program of student assessment test results since 2009. Their students lost one and a half to nearly two years of learning in reading, mathematics and science. The falls in test scores were far bigger than for public schools. The learning loss in Catholic and independent schools occurred even though they were heavily favoured by the government funding increases since 2009. Government, Commonwealth and state territory funding adjusted for inflation increased by $2,697 per student in Catholic schools and by $2,310 in independent schools between 2009 and 2021 compared to $1,062 in public schools. 
This means only one thing. The state aid experiment commenced in the 1950s and consolidated in the 1960s onwards is not only socially divisive, it is educational and economic madness. The way forward is not chipping at the edges with taxation and charitable status questions, nor is it a demand for open enrolment policies for private schools if they take public money. These are interesting steps, but they only chip away at the fundamental problem. The only way forward is to withdraw state aid from any private school that is not prepared to become a genuinely public school. Why? Because the public system is the only one which has as its objective the education of all, not some of the children in our democratic society. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, uh, thank you very much, Kim, but we'll have a little bit of a break. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program. Back in November the 30th, a very interesting report came out from the Productivity Commission, which was really uh, aimed at the Charities Commission. We really do advise you to look at this report because it deals with philanthropy, which is exemptions for charities and the taxation system, which we've been talking about for a long time. And in that chapter six, they make the extraordinary recommendations that only poor people really or philanthropy should really deal with disadvantaged children or disadvantaged people. And uh, private schools should only get um, any kind of exemption if they can prove that there is an equity um, uh, balance. But um, most of all, they are looking at the taxation rules around the giving of donations for those wonderful buildings that the private schools have got. Andy's going to tell us all about it. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Dogs Breakfast Philanthropy Laws Contributing to Private School Overfunding, report says. New report shows wealthier schools received over $200 million in tax-deductible philanthropic donations for lavish projects that did not affect government support. A radical overhaul of tax-deductible donations could prevent wealthy private schools using the system to fund lavish facilities. Research by Save Our Schools has shown that 10 of Australia's wealthiest schools received more than $200 million in donations over a five-year period, income that does not affect the level of government funding they receive. A draft report on philanthropic giving released by the Productivity Commission at the end of November has recommended stripping tax-deductible status from school building funds, many of which are run by religious schools. Most, but not all, charities have deductible gift recipient, DGR, status, which allows people to get the tax back on money they donate. But the rules governing who gets it have been described as a dog's breakfast. The Commission's report said the DGR rules were not fit for purpose, poorly designed, overly complex, and have no coherent policy rationale. 
Giving DGR status is a way to steer donations to certain charitable activities and away from others. Donors may also see it as a sign of legitimacy, quality or effectiveness, the report said. There is no explicit policy rationale justifying why some charitable activities are within scope, but others are not. There are animal welfare, LGBTQ+, and injury prevention charities, for example, that the Australian Tax Office has not endorsed as DGRs, but the system is ad hoc. Schools as a whole are not endorsed, but can set up school building funds and other fundraisers that are. School building funds were given DGR status in 1954, when government support for non-government schools was very limited, the report said. Since then, government support for non-government schools has expanded considerably, but the indirect support through DGR status is not prioritised according to a systemic assessment of the infrastructure needs of different schools. The Commission also warned that the tax-deductible donations could be directly converted into lower fees, giving people a tax break on their school fees. Save Our Schools says donations contribute to the overfunding of private schools. At the very least, income from donations and investments should be included in the assessment of the financial need of private schools, the organisation said in a statement earlier this year. Their data does not distinguish between school building funds and other donations. The proposed change would affect about 5,000 school building funds. In the Australian Tax Forum Journal earlier this year, Melbourne Law School Professor Alan O'Connell looked at DGR statistics for entities that do not need, or alternatively it could be argued, do not deserve taxpayer-funded support. We not only have a system that is not fit for purpose, but could be described as a dog's breakfast, she wrote. The system has been added to in fits and starts over time, often at the whim of a politician, and certainly not as the result of carefully considered tax policy. She wrote that the system was put in place to help low-fee, poorer, often Catholic independent schools, but has now ballooned. There are numerous examples of private schools using the funds to build lavish facilities rather than the basic infrastructure that was a concern in the 1950s, she wrote. She also said parents were pressured by schools to make donations and may not realise the payments are voluntary. These pressures may also include perceptions that their child may be disadvantaged if they fail to make a donation, she wrote. The Australian Council of Social Service, ACOS, said tax concessions, including DGR, came at a cost to the budget, at the risk that other funding sources would be withdrawn, and a risk of wealthy donors establishing foundations that influence public policy processes in a way that is not consistent with government transparency and accountability. Public hearings will begin in February, with the Commission to deliver its final report in May. Back to you, Jean. Thank you so much, Angie. Of course, that, that's not a finished matter. The report is there for people to comment on, so we can just imagine how the private schools are going to keep up a fuss. But we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back and Sorrel's going to talk, us, talk to us about the, uh, the uh, general report, the most important report of all. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. We hope you're still with the Dogs Program because we're now going to talk about the Improving Outcomes for All report. As we all know, when the Labor Party or the Liberal Party for that matter have got a really, really big pub problem, they set up a commission of inquiry and they, they write a report. Whether or not they look at the recommendations or do anything about them is another matter. But there has been a very interesting report um, on the educational issues. Uh, not so much funding, of course. Uh, they're... they're the terms of reference uh, have to lead to compromise. Uh, 
people in power play these games, as we all know. But reading in between the lines, there's some very interesting, well, we've already referred to it in our, in our press release, at least two interesting things. But um, Tom Greenwell has got an interesting report to make about it. And John Menadue's um, Pearls and Irritations. And Sol is going to tell us what he has to say. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. This article is by Tom Greenwell and is entitled New Review Makes Groundbreaking Call for Transformation of Australia's School System. The results from the OECD's PISA test results last week showed that in Australia, demography is destiny, revealing that by the time young people reach year nine, a staggering five years of learning separates students from advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds. This week, a major report advanced a compelling explanation for our educational woes and pointed to the way to immediate and long-term solutions. Commissioned by Commonwealth Education Minister Jason Clare, the Improving Outcomes for All report was released ahead of negotiations for the next National School Reform Agreement, the four-year school funding deal between states and the Commonwealth. The expert panel that produced the report included the world-renowned Finnish author and researcher Passy Selberg and the head of education at the Grattan Institute, Jordana Hunter, and was chaired by Lisa O'Brien, former CEO of the Smith family and head of the Australian Education Research Organisation. The first problem the O'Brien report highlights, and the one that has understandably received most of the attention, is money. Australian governments long ago defined the basic level of resourcing required for most students, not all, to achieve minimum standards, not excellence, and have now failed for more than a decade to deliver even that. It is a case of public policy negligence in the first degree. The message from the expert panel was clear. 98% of public schools are not funded at the basic resource standard, and that needs to be rectified, urgently. But the O'Brien report identifies another major cause of inequity and underachievement, arguing that increasing the socioeconomic diversity of our schools is essential to lifting outcomes. It points out that Australia's school system is unusually socially segregated, and the problem is getting worse. With around half a million students attending a school where there are high concentrations of social disadvantage. The report presents stark evidence that this arrangement of students is fundamentally undermining all that schools aspire to achieve. For example, it describes how 78% of low SES students in high SES schools performed at or above NAPLAN's national minimum standards in 2017. That proportion fell to 38% for low SES students in low SES schools. Meanwhile, students experiencing disadvantage who attend, who attend advantage schools score 86 points higher in PISA in 2015 science testing, the equivalent of three years of school, than their peers who are experiencing disadvantage who attend disadvantage schools. When you think about it, the negative impact of concentrating socially disadvantaged students in the same schools is not surprising. The expert panel spoke with teachers who described increased classroom disruption, increased teacher workloads, and reduced opportunities for one-on-one -on -one teaching time with students who need the most individual attention. The challenges posed in these contexts inevitably impact teacher morale, which in turn affects retention and recruitment. 
Thus, the report records 34% of students enrolled in a disadvantaged Australian school attend a school whose principal reported that instruction is hindered by a lack of teaching staff, compared to 3% of students in an advantaged school. As important as the O'Brien's report's insights into the new problems facing our schools are, they are not new. The finding that the SES profile of the school may be a stronger predictor of academic achievement than the student's individual family socioeconomic status can be found, almost verbatim, in the Gonski report. But the way the O'Brien report responds to the problem is new, groundbreaking in fact. In essence, it offers a declaration that we must revisit the basic assumptions underpinning our dual system of publicly funded schools, in which public schools are free and comprehensive, whilst private schools can pick and choose which students they will enrol and charge higher fees as the market will bear. In questioning existing arrangements, the report contemplates the possibility that public funding of non-government schools is only provided on the condition that they cannot charge fees. The report seriously countenances proposals that non-government schools in receipt of public funding are required to implement inclusive enrolment practices. After noting submissions that endorse such an approach, the report observes... In New Zealand, the UK and Canada, for example, governments regulate non-government school enrolment policies to increase the diversity of students. Applying inclusive enrolment policies in Australia is one way in which non-government schools can increase enrolment of students from diverse backgrounds and reduce concentrations of disadvantage. Cataloguing a series of international approaches to reducing social segregation, the O'Brien report points to examples of legislated quotas which stipulate the minimum number or percentage of students from vulnerable cohorts that high-demand schools must accept. The report doesn't formally endorse any specific policy lever, let alone recommend its immediate application, observing only that the interventions outlined have successfully resulted in desegregation in a range of countries. But perspective is needed. Such measures have hitherto been unthinkable in an Australian context. It is a huge deal that they are being raised at all. The O'Brien report has almost single-handedly made the unthinkable thinkable. While this seminal development has been missed in most of the media commentary this week, one important reader of the report has received its message loud and clear. Education Minister Jason Clare. This report tells us that we have one of the most segregated school systems in the OECD, not by the colour of your skin, but by the size of your parents' pay packet, Claire said on ABC News Breakfast this week. Critically, the minister not only indicated that he has registered the problem, but he also acknowledged that the expert panel has canvassed a series of possible solutions. The report says there are a number of things that we need to do to help tackle that and turn that around, he said. The O'Brien report recommends two immediate, concrete steps to get a policy solution. First, it calls for annual measurement and public reporting on the socioeconomic diversity of schools and systems by the end of 2025. In itself, this would be a huge step forward, annually placing a big, bright spotlight on how social segregation bedevils Australian education and forcing policymakers to answer hard questions about their responsibility to create the conditions of success for schools and students. Regular measurement of the problem at an official level will also support the second step recommended by O'Brien. 
a new review into the right combination of interventions required to increase socioeconomic diversity in the Australian context to be completed by the end of 2027. It would be easy to dismiss this recommendation as just kicking the can down the road, but that would be to fundamentally underestimate the scale of transformation that the review is calling in for, both in discourse and policy. The expert panel has been and will be criticised for being too cautious, but it is right to say that to successfully increase socio-educational diversity in schools, governments and systems will need to carefully consider which policies are most effective overseas and which might be most effective transferred to the Australian context. Even more complex and challenging than the policy journey that has yet to be travelled is the task of building a workable consensus around new arrangements for resourcing and regulating Australian schools. The review is talking about a fundamental departure from the way we've done things in the last half century or more. Given this, it is wise to hasten slowly. A review like this affects change by putting certain issues on the agenda and shaping how we think about them. O'Brien has put the possibility of radical change on the table. It has presented tangible, urgently important recommendations that put significant pressure on governments to act, and it's all underpinned by discussion that sets out some basic truths about the fatal flaws in existing arrangements, which, if read with any diligence, should shape all subsequent conversation. Above all, O'Brien makes clear that the unusually high degree of segregation in our school system is driven by differences between school sectors. Some non-government schools charge high fees, which naturally limit access to students from low-income and middle-income families. The report states, accompanied by compelling evidence of the extent of concentrated disadvantage in the government sector and concentrated advantage in independent schools, and to a lesser extent in Catholic schools. Enrolment and fees policies in non-government schools affect socioeconomic diversity, the report finds. The fact that these observations are obvious only make it more important that they are finally being said out loud. These are the forces that are driving the critical peer effects that have such a negative effect on learning outcomes. The O'Brien report makes it abundantly clear that the basic structures of Australian schooling in which public funding does not always come with commensurate public obligations are fundamentally failing us. It has made equally clear that it doesn't have to be like this. Comparable countries offer a whole range of alternatives to consider. In doing so, it has laid the groundwork for a new conversation about arrangements that optimally serve all our young people. Now, it's up to us. It truly is. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Sorrel. And here's Glenn Savage, who's now at the University of Melbourne. Let's see what he, as a member of the Commentariat, has got to say. Over to Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article here by Glenn Savage and Jacob Broom, and this is from uh, the Australian Research Council. A new report wants more funding and better support for Australian schools, but we need a proper plan for how to get there. 
So they go on to say, Federal Ed- Education Minister Jason Clare released a major report on schools on Monday. This will inform the next round of federal funding for schools as part of the National School Reform Agreement, the NSRAs. And this is due to start in January 2025. The report was commissioned off the back of a scathing review by the Productivity Commission in January last year. And it found initiatives in the current agreement have done little so far to improve student outcomes. So who wrote the report? In response to the Productivity Commission's findings, Claire extended the current agreement by 12 months until December 2024 to allow an expert panel to conduct this review. In March, it was tasked with advising education ministers on key targets and specific reforms that should be tied to funding in the next NSRA. The panel was led by the chair of the Australian Education Research Organisation and former head of the Smith family, Lisa O'Brien, along with a survey of students, parents and teachers with almost 25,000 responses. The panel held 130 meetings with stakeholders and made 92 school visits. So what is the NSRA, the National School Reform Agreement? The National School Reform Agreement is a joint agreement between the Commonwealth, states and territories designed to improve outcomes in Australian schools. It sets out national reform directions and targets that governments agree to pursue over a set period of time. The current agreement was five years, extended to six. While the agreement is not widely known beyond education policy circles, it is crucial for shaping the future of education in Australia. It is also intimately linked with school funding. The reforms outlined in the agreement inform the conditions of federal funding for state and territory systems. So, while the agreement does not directly determine the model used to determine federal funding for schools, known as the Schooling Resource Standard, the SRS, it shapes what states and territories do with the money by linking funding to the targets. And what did the report say? The report identifies seven reform directions it wants governments to consider in the next agreement. These are designed to lift student outcomes, improve equity and student well-being and attract and retain teachers. They are also geared at enhancing funding transparency, reducing education data gaps and supporting innovation. There are also 24 recommendations across the reform directions. For example, universal screening for literacy and numeracy in year one and more specific help for students in transition to life after school. Three big issues. The report outlines three big issues that pose barriers to reform efforts. First, state and territory governments ultimately retain the power in how money is spent in their schools. This means it can be difficult to maintain a cohesive approach to implementing national reforms across the Federation. Second, there are increasing numbers of students with disabilities and complex needs. This means a higher workload and mental load for teachers and can make it harder for schools to teach effectively. Third, nearly all public schools are not fully funded in line with the recommended Gonski funding model, the schooling resource standard. So what does the report get right? 
There's little doubt the seven reform directions speak to crucial issues in Australian schools. The report also makes strong statements about the need to ensure all schools are fully and consistently funded. For example, it notes it is critical all schools have access to 100% of the SRS funding as soon as possible. It's welcome to see the report endorse collaboration and co-design with First Nations stakeholders to develop policies to make schools more culturally aware and responsive. There is also great potential in a recommendation that governments implement full-service school models that better connect schools with health, family and disability services. As the panel notes, such models must be more widely implemented to better meet the needs of students experiencing disadvantage. What are the report's limitations? A major problem with the report is many of its ideas and recommendations are not translated into tangible targets. The targets that do feature tend to focus on what can be easily measured. This means we will be tracking the symptoms rather than tackling the root causes of educational challenges. For example, the report repeatedly draws attention to alarming and widening learning gaps in literacy and numeracy between young people from advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds, but there's no recommended target to address these gaps. Instead, the report offers weaker targets to increase the proportion of disadvantaged students who meet minimum proficiency standards for reading and numeracy in NAPLAN. This will do very little to close achievement gaps. Another target equity is primarily about creating a way of measuring the differences in outcomes between cohorts by 2029, not outlining measures to address the gap itself. Targets are the primary mechanism for shaping government efforts, as the targets are what the funding is linked to. So a major risk is the strongest ideas of the report will fade into obscurity. Now it's time to talk about funding. Moving forward, the challenge for federal and state education ministers will be to translate the directions outlined in this report into specific targets and reform initiatives for the upcoming new agreement. Responding to the report, education ministers released a statement suggesting three main themes will inform the next agreements. Equity and excellence, well-being for learning and engagement, and a strong and a sustainable workforce. While these themes overlap somewhat with the report, ministers were clear to describe the independent report as only one of a number of inputs to the next agreement. The panel was forbidden by its terms of reference from examining the schooling resource standard. For most For the most part, the report is silent on the funding implications of its recommended targets. In this next round of deliberations, it will be impossible to avoid the funding debate. There is no doubt the funding wars will be reignited. A central issue will be whether states and territories have the resourcing capacities to implement the reforms, especially considering how far some jurisdictions are from being fully funded under the so-called Gonski 
model. If schooling systems are not fairly placed to achieve targets, then the setting of targets becomes a fool's game. It's akin to making elaborate plans for a family reunion in Disneyland, but refusing to discuss how everyone will get there. Ultimately, how much funding schools get and how they use it are equally important, and both will need to be central to the debates that follow. So more reviews, more panels, and no changes for at least another 12 months. Back to you, Jean. Let's have a break now. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. in the program we, we referred to the PISA schools where the public schools did better than the private schools, would you believe? Andy's going to tell us more about it. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, this is an article from Trevor Cobalt. Private schools had the biggest decline in PISA results. Catholic and independent schools had the biggest declines in the OECD's Program of Student Assessment, PISA, test results since 2009. Their students lost one and a half to nearly two years of learning in reading, mathematics and science. The falls in test scores were far bigger than for public schools. The learning loss in Catholic and independent schools occurred even though they were heavily favoured by government funding increases since 2009. Government, Commonwealth and State Territory funding, adjusted for inflation, increased by $2,697 per student in Catholic schools and by $2,310 in independent schools between 2009 and 2021, compared to $1,062 in public schools. The reading learning loss in Catholic and independent schools was nearly three times that in public schools. Catholic reading results fell by 26 points and by 27 points in independent schools compared to 10 points in public schools. The learning loss in private schools was almost equivalent to 18 months of school compared to six months in public schools. Mathematics results fell by 37 points in independent schools, which is equivalent to nearly two years of learning, and by 29 points in Catholic schools, compared to 24 points in public schools. The learning loss in science in Catholic and independent schools was nearly 18 months. Science results fell by 28 points in independent schools and by 29 points in Catholic schools, compared to 17 points in public schools. The new PISA results refute claims that private schools have better results than public schools. The report on Australia's PISA results shows that higher raw scores for Catholic and independent schools are solely due to their more advantaged student demographic profiles. The report shows that public schools have nearly double the proportion of students from low SES families as Catholic schools and nearly three times the proportion in independent schools. The respective portions are 33%, 18% and 12%. At the same time, public schools have a much smaller proportion of students from high SES families, 18% compared to 29% in Catholic schools and 40% in independent schools. 
These differences in socioeconomic composition impact on school results, and the impact is particularly large in Australia compared to many other countries. The socioeconomic gradient in Australia in mathematics is 45, meaning a 45-point increase in mathematics results for every one unit increased in the PISA measures of SES. It is significantly higher than the average for the OECD of 39, while Singapore had the highest gradient of 51. The report adjusted the raw PISA scores for difference in the SES composition of the school sectors. It found that public schools outperformed Catholic schools after adjusting for differences in the socioeconomic status of students and schools. The adjustment shows that public schools' results exceeded that of Catholic schools by 13 points in reading, 17 points in mathematics, and 15 points in science. The differences amount to more than six months of learning. While the adjustment for SES student and school background show that public schools outperformed independent schools by six to seven points in each subject, this is not statistically significant. Clearly, public schools are performing at least as well as, if not better than, independent schools. These are remarkable results, given that independent schools have a massive resource advantage over public schools, partly due to their huge increases in government funding. In 2021, income per student in independent schools 46% higher than in public schools, while it was 12% higher in Catholic schools. Even the right-wing Centre for Independent Studies acknowledged that public schools really do punch above their weight. In view of these results, the question governments and taxpayers should be asking of private schools is what they have done with their highly privileged funding increase. There appears to be much wasteful expenditure amongst Catholic and independent schools. It is apparent that the large increases in government funding have allowed them to devote much of their fee income to the arms racing gold-plated facilities such as well-being centres, ornate libraries, extravagant music and drama theatres, more swimming pools and ovals, buying up properties, etc. Many of these schools have exhortative salary packages for principals of up to $1 million and have extensive marketing budgets. None of this appears to be better educating their students. It is a credit to public schools teachers that they have achieved such success under the duress of massive underfunding and the resource advantage of private schools. Public schools enroll over 80% of all low SES, Indigenous and remote area students, but are only funded on average at 87.3% of their school resourcing standard, SRS, while private schools are overfunded at 105.5% of their SRS. However, the under-resourcing of public schools is having a disastrous impact on the education of low SES, Indigenous and remote area students, over 80% of whom attend public schools. The new PISA results show large achievement gaps between rich and poor in reading, mathematics and science of five or more years of learning at age 15, and the gaps have widened since 2006. The failure to fully fund public schools is a major factor contributing to inequity in education outcomes. The chronic, severe underfunding of public schools must end if progress is to be made on closing the achievement gap between rich and poor. The Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, told ABC RN Breakfast last week that, I want to close the funding gap and close the education gap. This is a strong commitment, but the question is, when? To date, he and his state territory counterparts remain silent on when public schools will be fully funded. Their rhetoric must be matched by action, which is long overdue. And back to you, Jean. Well, many thanks, Sandy. Isn't that interesting? And Trevor Cobalt has got his head around that, hasn't he? But um, now we're going to go overseas and Jeff will take us off to America. Over to you, Jeff. 
Oh, Gene, well, thank you very much. Just glad to have you back. We're going to the United States now. We're going to investigate a bunch of people called the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. They have people such as Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, who was one of their lawyers. They're a group who's been funded by extreme right-wing conservative Christian groups who have a serious bent against public education. They wish to remove any kind of sex education from schools. They stand directly against same-sex marriage and all matters affecting the LGBTQIA community. They wish to see people allowed to opt out of public education if any part of the public education model conflicts with their very conservative views and they think that vouchers should be provided to those students and their parents so that they can go to private schools. They effectively want to end public school education in America if they can. It includes such people as Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who worked for them for five years, Mike Pence, former Attorney Generals William Barr and Jeff Sessions, and Senator Josh Hawley. These are all members of or ADF alumni. And it has a large number of people have spoken to the group, including Australia's Tony Abbott, who gave a speech to them regarding his stance against same-sex marriage and the Christian ideals that he would rather see in education. This is a group with absolutely outstanding credentials when it comes to instilling the Handmaid's Tale style of American control over its people. Also, they literally stand to destroy public education. So we're going to go to an article we found through the Diana Ravitch's blog by a journalist who has been investigating for some time, Nick Sergey. It's called The Legal Arm of the Christian Right Has a Plan to Sink the Public School System. This ADF, by the way, is funded to the tune of something like $78 million by various groups, including the Cokes and the Betsy DeVos Foundation and some other groups have you know, donated up to $12 million in one financial year. There's some very big donors out there. One, one thinks they must have connections to right-wing conservative Christian school systems, especially in the for-profit category. Nick Sergey writes... In June 2021, leaders from the Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, the right-wing legal group that set the groundwork for striking down Roe versus Wade, of course they're extremely anti-abortion of it too, began meeting in secret with a group of wealthy Christian right donors to discuss the future of the public education system. They were inspired by a speech by former Trump Attorney General William Barr as he received an award from the ADF the previous month. In his speech, Barr outlined the case against public schools. Barr said, I think we have to confront the reality that it may no longer be fair, practical or even constitutional to provide publicly funded education solely through the vehicle of state-operated schools, said Barr. After his speech, according to a recording, he spoke with leaders from ADF and SICLAG, a secretive funding project for high net worth families that channels millions of dollars to groups like ADF. A plan was hatched for multi-stage litigation with the explicit goal of draining a quarter of a trillion dollars annually from our public schools. Our goal is not just to throw stones. Our goal is to take down the education system as we know it today, said Peter Bollinger, one of the leaders from Zieglag, Z-I-K-L-A-G, in a recording obtained by Documented. Documented has obtained other internal recordings, planned documents and various other materials from this project, they provide a rare fly-on-the-wall outlook inside the development of a legal strategy from the legal arm of the Christian right. 
In addition to writing laws for conservative state legislatures targeting abortion and LGBTQIA plus rights, the ADF has also made inroads into the Supreme Court. Justice Amy Coney Barrett taught in the ADF's Blackstone Legal Fellowship Program for five years, and both Barrett and Justice Samuel Alito took Blackstone alumni as law clerks last summer as the court considered 303 Creative versus Ellenus, a lawsuit filed by the ADF on behalf of of a Christian web designer against Colorado's public accommodations law. The Supreme Court struck down the anti-discrimination statute on free speech grounds. More Perfect Union is the first to publish these recordings in partnership with Documented. We also provide the Washington Post with the materials which it covered in a front-page story by Emma Brown in September. ADF's hope was that the then-new 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court would provide them with a chance to radically change how we fund public schools. They anticipated that anger on the right about critical race theory, which is not actually being taught in public schools, and other culture war issues would help their case. As ADF developed its strategies, uh, protests were erupting at school board meetings across the country, sometimes involving physical violence, animated by issues around race, gender and sex in school curriculum. Large numbers of school board members have faced death threats and intimidation, as Reuters has reported. On a call with the Ziklag donors in July 2021, the then ADF President Mike Farris compared public school lesson plans to Nazi Germany. What we really see going on in the public schools has an uncanny parallel to the Third Reich, Farris told the donors. There's a clear, open effort to indoctrinate kids in this woke ideology. As Farris explained to Ziklag, the plan was to bring lawsuits in different parts of the country designed to create a split in the federal courts that the Supreme Court would have to step in and resolve. There have been significant efforts by the right to implement school voucher programs that proponents refer to as school choice. Since the desegregation of public schools in the 1950s, following the Brown versus Board of Education decision. The programs effectively siphon money from public schools and use taxpayers' dollars to pay for private school tuition. Even in states such as Texas, vouchers have proved to be highly controversial. Now the ADF wants the Supreme Court to institute a nationally mandated school voucher program. The main aim of this is to say, if you're going to teach a worldview in the public schools, you've got to give a constitutional mandated voucher or some other form of educational choice to every parent who doesn't want to participate in that mandated kind of program of indoctrination, Farris said on the July 2021 call. All of the details are in the new video from More Perfect Union, in partnership with Documented, which you can watch. And there's a link. And if you'd like to watch it, this is in an article, say, of the 5th of October 2023 by Nick Sergey called The Legal Arm of the Christian Right Has a Plan to Sink the Public Schools System. And it's on The Shakedown, which is part of the Documented Network online. It's the shakedown, one word, documented.net. And this is an alarmingly powerful group now as we see how many American politicians are being funded by this group or at least promoted by this group, including the most prominent of them all, Mike Johnson, who is the now Speaker of the Lower House in the United States and who is using basically blackmail to prevent uh, votes in the House, especially the one supporting Ukraine. They are very powerful now and... They are an enemy of public education and therefore they are an enemy of the dogs. And with that, Jean, I'm going to pass it back to you. Well, thank you, um, Jeff. I, I hope we're still listening to dogs because we always 
end on a very positive note. And this is a very, very positive note for a great state school that had terrific BCE results, but actually does a lot of other very good things too. Over to you, Andy. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Thanks, Jean. And this week's great state school of the week is University High School. In 1910, the University Practicing School was opened in a former primary school on the corner of Ligon and Lytton Streets, Carlton. In 1913, it changed its name to the University High School after the closure of the older private school. Since 1930, this school has occupied a site in Story Street, Parkville, adjacent to the Royal Melbourne Hospital and in close proximity to the Royal Children's Hospital, the newly built Royal Women's Hospital, the University of Melbourne and the Central Business District. During World War II, the United States Army set up a camp on the school oval. Additionally, 240 extra students from McRobertson's Girl High School transferred to UHS for schooling as their buildings were also used by the military. The school has been a pioneer in the education of gifted and talented students in Australia. Its acceleration program for gifted students, which began in 1981, is the longest running and most stable program of its kind in Australia. An $8 million upgrade of the school facilities was completed in 1997. The completion of the works has given the school modern facilities with appropriate specialist rooms. During the 2021 school holidays, an electrical fire consumed much of the south building, destroying the second and third floors of the building, as well as damaging the library on the first floor and the fourth floor, the VCE Centre. The VCE Centre, the 600s rooms on the second floor and the library reopened at the beginning of the last quarter of the year with a newly refurbished design, while the third floor is yet to reopen. And now looking at the VCE results from 2023. And this is uh, from the website of the school. We are very proud of the growth and excellence demonstrated by our students in 2023. This cohort was an engaged, cohesive group who showed a genuine love of learning and strong peer connections and support for each throughout their time at UHS. Our 2023 results represent some outstanding individual achievements, as well as steady improvements across a range of factors and learning areas. As well as challenging themselves to grow in their learning, our 2023 cohort demonstrated immense personal resilience to overcome both the challenges of COVID during their formative middle years and for a number of students, some significant personal hardships as well. Each and every student's results are a credit to the hard work of these young people and their teachers throughout their time at University High School. They exemplify excellence through attention to detail, determination and rigour. The results today are just the start of a story for our graduating students. They do not define their success, but are a stepping stone in their learning and their personal, civic and professional development. We are delighted that these results mean that a wide range of meaningful pathways and possibilities are open to our students and look forward to the release of tertiary offers in January. Highlights include 11 students with an ATAR of 99 and above, one perfect ATAR of 99.95 and one of 99.9. 62 students with an ATAR of 95+, plus, median ATAR of 83.7, 56.6% with an ATAR of 80 and above, 
10 perfect study scores of 50 in chemistry, physics, psychology, specialist mathematics, mathematical methods, and an additional six study scores of 49 across chemistry, English language, and physics. Mean study score across all studies of 31.2, up from 31.0 in 2022, and a median study score of 31. 13.6 of all study scores were 40 plus, the highest percentage since 2018. 28 of our 31 subjects recorded at least one study score above 40. 24.6% of study scores were 37 plus, an increase from 2022. Now, there's an enrolment of 1,858 students, and the ICSIA value of the school is above average at 1123. Now, what this means is that the... Um, 54% of students have parents in the upper 25% of parental income. Uh, the second level, about 26%. The third, 25%, the below the 50% mark, is 13%, and 7% from the lowest quartile. So really a school with mainly advantaged students, partially selected on academic ability, with 64% speaking a language other than English, and 1% Indigenous students. Now the finances are recurrent grants, Australian Government $5.8 million, and Victorian Government $22 million. Fees and parental contributions, $1.7 million. Other private contributions, $1.3 million. So that works out per pupil at $17,506. Capital is $6.8 million over three years. And the net plan results are fine with numeracy above average. Now back to you, Jean. Well, the time has come to say goodbye and thanks to Dale, our wonderful producer, and Kim and Sorrel and... Andy uh, and Jeff, aren't we lucky to have these wonderful people to help us? And uh, we ask you, if you're interested in us, to look at our website at www.adogs.info. But from us all here at 3CR, it's time to say bye for now. Every mine and mill where
better strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw your hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.